This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today, I have really a great pleasure in talking to Howard Junker, who is the founder, among other things, the founder of just an extraordinary magazine called Ziziva, Z-Y-Z-Z-Y-V-A, but also himself a writer, a thinker, a talker, a conversationalist, a really smart guy. Nice to have you here, Howard. Thank you. Um, So, you know... I, the main thing I wanted to talk to you about was Zizivad, just partially because it's such an extraordinary achievement to have a magazine that has lasted as long as it has. But I also wanted to talk to you about your other, you know, your life, your work, the things, other things you've done that kind of um, established the groundwork that you built upon uh, to start the magazine in 1985. Yes. So when you... And I've you know I've looked you I've looked at your you know because every everything we do nowadays is online and um, you were a pretty active writer a journalist uh, in the sixties um, you know yeah. you, you have some notoriety apparently for writing an early piece about uh, Andy Warhol <laughs> uh, but kind of maybe you could talk a little bit about how you know what how did you begin. Being, you know, what what got you started in journalism in the 1960s? Um, well, my great grandfather uh, was a, a German American artist. He was came over in 1882 for the Frankfurter Allgemeiner Zeitung to go out west, and so he went out west and he met Sitting Bull, who had just come back from Canada because there weren't any more buffalo up there, and so. Sitting Bull was living on the reservation, and as my grandfather, great grandfather, came across on the train, he stopped off at Fort Randall and, and painted portraits of Sitting Bull and his other chiefs and talked to him a lot. And they agreed that uh, if they had children, uh, they could marry each other. And my great grandfather named his daughter Minnehaha. Wow. <laughs> and uh, then my uh, great grandfather continued to, to San Francisco, and I have a painting that he did of. Um, of Chinatown, and he did lots of other books and became president of the German American Writers Club or Association or something. And so that that's the deep inspiration. Uh, and then I grew up uh, in Chappaqua, New York, which is across the valley from the Reader's Digest, and so that was always uh, pulsing back there. And next door to me in a house that my father, an old farmhouse that my father had fixed up, lived in a young editor at McGraw Hill. And after my father died, this young editor uh, sort of took me under his wing. He and his wife were in their probably early 30s, and they were very kind to me and took me to Princeton football games to watch Dick Kazmaier, who was a triple threat. Do you know what a triple threat was? Yes, and I remember the name Dick Kazmaier, too. Yeah, he, he could he could run, pass, and kick, and and drop kicking at that in that era was a thing. Right. So you know you you could run over and drop kick it and get a point. <laughs> anyway, so so he said to me, uh, when you get to be in college, you could be my co- my summer reader, and so I always thought that was a great thing to be, and I always aimed at that. And I was good in English and edited the, my high school newspaper and blah blah blah. But then when I got to to uh, Amherst uh, and called him up and said, you know, I'm ready. Uh, 
to be your summer reader. He said, oh, geez, I'm awfully sorry, but I don't have any openings this summer. I don't know what had happened, whether it doesn't matter. In any case, I, I, so I wrote a letter to the only other publisher that I liked or that really that I knew, Grove Press, and they said, sure, you could, you're the first one, so you could come and uh, type up postcards to send to professors uh, to encourage them to get our catalog and order books. So I did that for I did that for a summer after uh, after junior year, and it sort of went on from there. And then I uh, wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. I saw this great movie called Mondo Cane. It was a documentary yeah. yep. that that was the first of the shockumentaries, and it had cannibalism and i loved when they took a machete and sliced off the, the, the skull of a monkey and then dipped their spoons into it and i love the cargo cults in, in papua new guinea where they where the natives wondered how the, the white people got all this stuff from these birds so they would try to build airplanes and airports and telegraph stations out of bamboo so that they could summon the spirits of the ancestors to come. I thought that was absolutely great. So I wanted to do that. And then I got into cinema verite a little bit. And, and one of the ways I thought I could do that was to interview the, the filmmakers. And, and, uh, I thought I could, I could do that for Harper's magazine. And so like everybody was willing to talk to me, but of course I wasn't a good enough writer to, um, to, um, sell it to, to Harper's. Uh, but then I heard that Andy Warhol was making movies, and so I wrote, uh, went and visited him. And of course, he was very uh, generous. That is to say, he let me talk to the people who did all the stuff for him, and they they were very funny at that time. And he was he was still he, he was still making silent movies. So uh, I that was my first um, professional piece, and I got paid thirty five dollars for it, <laughs> and just sort of went on from there. Uh, and in the late 60s wrote uh, in the back of the book, the culture sections for Newsweek. And then unfortunately I got a wonderful fellowship at Stanford, which was too good to turn down. I was still thinking that I wanted to uh, uh, make documentaries for TV, but they said, well, you have to have three years experience for on on a news magazine for us to consider you. So I had done that. So then I took this, so I, I took this fellowship and then the guy I was interviewing in Philadelphia Westinghouse TV station, uh, he was going to hire me there, but then he was transferred to San Francisco and uh, uh, he hired me there. But I really didn't have any aptitude for television, the, the, the precision, the timing, the, the, the silliness of what you could actually do and the, and the kind of teamwork, which I was totally incapable of participating in. So I got quickly fired and then had to kind of fend for myself for a while. I wanted to stay in San Francisco. I didn't want to go back to, uh, to New York. And I went through a long, a lot of, a lot of changes and I became a carpenter. Uh, my father had been a shop teacher and, and, and a house builder. And so that was a way of re, 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 revising my relationship with him and becoming him in a way. And then uh, uh, I started to write a little bit again. Art Art in America asked me to do some pieces and Architectural Digest asked me to do some pieces. 
which which I really loved because they were very short, and uh, I got to fly down to L.A. a lot of times, and I got to see Los Angeles in the, in, in the fancy houses and talk to the designers. And so as I was, and then I then I got hired at at um, Bechtel, which is a big engineering construction firm. They built. Uh, Hoover Dam, and they did all sorts of things in Saudi Arabia, and all sorts of nuclear power plants. And they had just uh, this. This was in the in the uh, very early eighties. Now we're up to and while I it was it was a very tedious uh, job because I really they really didn't like. I was supposed to write speeches, but they didn't really like to give speeches, or in any case, they didn't want me to write them, and so. I didn't really have a lot to do, uh, but one day I was having lunch with the proofreader in the department, an old guy, he was maybe 16, and he said, uh, well, you know, when I was your age, I, I had a literary magazine in Columbus, Ohio, and he had published Olson and Creeley and Ferlinghetti before he was Ferlinghetti, he was only Larry Ferling in those days, and I thought, wow, that's so cool, that would be that would be really fun to do. Why don't we do something like that in-house? So it started that way, and I thought there would be enough people because there was, an, there was a, a woman poet in our PR section, and I thought there might be some other people. And we, we, there was things like the Bechtel Microcomputer Club and all that sort of stuff. But there wasn't enough people in, in, in-house. So I, the idea just lay germinating, and then I got laid off. Uh, and then when I got hired back again, I was hired back to, as a, as a technical editor, which meant I proofread, uh, nuclear, uh, uh, safety analysis reports for Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant in lower California. So I learned proofreading and I learned how to work with designers. I learned how to work with so-called writers, that is to say engineers. And I did a few pamphlets and I got into that. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, I should, I should do this again. I should start up my idea. And by this time I had been talking about it to other people. And uh, when I got laid off again, because of course the nuclear power industry after Three Mile Island, which was a disaster in in Pennsylvania, a, a plant almost blew up. It didn't quite, it was fortunately stopped before Chernobyl meltdown. But all all uh, new construction stopped. So Becca was laying off people, and they said to me, "You know, we hate to lay people off. We want to keep our team together always, so we're ready for the next big thing. So why don't you just stick around here uh, at your desk and uh, use the computer and use the phone to see if you can't find another job." <laughs> so I thought, "Oh, good, I'm funded for for a little while." So I started to do to do my magazine. By that time, I had I had thought that it could be called the Downtown Review. That is to say, this guy that uh, I knew wrote mystery stories who worked for the B of A, and there was a lawyer who was writing a nonfiction book about something or another. So I thought there would be enough people downtown, and somehow I needed to have a uh, a a perimeter because otherwise it was all oceanic. I mean, I didn't have any experience. In the, I never, I had never run a magazine. I didn't know how to do it, but so I needed to have some sort of boundary to to make me feel safe, and so I, as if I knew where I was at. 
Uh, but it turned out that there was a downtown review, so I then thought of another name, Hubbub. <laughs> I like that. And But it turned out that there was a poetry magazine in Portland that had a circulation of 50. And so I <laughs> called them up. And they said, I said, you know, geez, you know, you're, it's, would you mind like seeding it? They said, no, absolutely not. This is, we're hubbub. <laughs> <laughs> so it came down to, to finally having uh, a, a meeting of all the people who had I gotten to put up $200, about 50 people put up $200. Uh, and I said, well, we really need a publisher. And one of one of my sort of friends who had worked as a stringer at, at Newsweek there uh, was then running Ortho Books, which was the Chevron, right. which was a local company, oil company headquartered in San Francisco. They did garden books and how to use fertilizer and insecticides and things like that. So he said, "Okay, I'll be your publisher. I I, I know lots of." Uh, printers I'll, I'll get you a deal and i got some designers are sitting on their ass out to help you out but he never did and so uh anything except make me uh help him fix up his loft i, mean, I helped him sheetrock his loft and he showed me the submachine gun that he had and his he was the, the grandson of chinese gangsters and that, that was all very exciting but he unfortunately didn't help me but he gave me <laughs> enough faith to continue which was important and so I, I uh, called up a friend and, and named Dougal Sturmer, who was a great illustrator and and designer and involved with with uh, New West magazine and very many many other things like that. And he put me in touch with Tom Ingalls, who had worked at Rolling Stone, and, and I had written for Rolling Stone. And Tom and I got along well, and we figured out a format that would be, I thought, classic and and usable and easily modular and and uh and clearly uh high class as opposed to like xerox or uh uh amateurish i thought it would be important to be to look good to look institutional right from the beginning but i didn't have it i didn't have a a, a, a title and it, it came down to i had to read the dictionary so needless to say i did not start with disease I mean, I started with S and T and M and F and B and A and uh, all the other letters. And finally, I I said, oh, geez, I've got one last letter to to read. It was really the American Heritage uh, American Heritage American Heritage College Dictionary of, of of the English language or something. And I got down to the last word, Ziziva, and I saw it in all caps, italic, and it looked opaque to me. It looked like a fence. It looked like a meaningless thing. And at that time, this was, you know, in this, in the late seventies and early eighties, there were a lot of very, uh, silly literary magazine names. That was sort of part of the deal. I mean, it was not like the Sawani review or, you know, the Gettysburg review or, or something. You, you, you could be really silly. And, uh, so I thought this was, I didn't know what it was going to be. And it was, after all, the last word, and that seemed appropriate uh, as, as as a San Francisco magazine, as as my last chance to redeem myself, having sort of wandered off from my cultural career, and uh, and so that that was how that started. 
That's a little bit more than you expected. But no, not at all. <laughs> I think that is it's a great evolutionary story. And I always, I you know, th- you touched upon several things that I've wanted to talk to you about. One is I thought that the look and feel of Zizova from the very beginning was very uh, clear and very well done. And you've mentioned that. Uh, but I also... Well, I, I'd grown, you know, in, in New York, uh, there had been... Um, Right after the war, a couple of of literary magazines, the Hudson Review started in in 1948, and the Paris Review, I think, in 52. So all through the 50s and early 60s, there were like a handful of these handsomely bound quarterlies. And I had known the Paris Review crowd a little bit through friends of mine and hung out at their parties a little, little bit. And so I had that example uh, and also when I was working at the University Art Museum at Berkeley in 1980, uh, Wendy Lesser came by. She had just started the three-painter review, and she wanted some illustrations. So I got a little bit of sense of what she was up to. And she was printing on newsprint, much like her, because her model was the New York Review of Books. And it was you know very cheap to do that. And I knew that I didn't want to compete with her. And... And I needed to compete in the high end. So uh, the first issue used up all my money. <laughs> that was horrific. How many copies did you print of the first issue? I think we did 5,000. Which is a which big, was, that's a maybe, big number. Maybe, yeah. 20, maybe it was 25, maybe it was, maybe it was 2,500. I can't, maybe, I think 2,500 would seem to me to be much in excess of, but we got rid of them all because we just mailed them out indiscriminately to as many people as possible. And in fact, that was that's one of the great regrets that I had in, in the way I managed my career, is that I didn't continue to give out free copies uh, to everybody and to keep people on the mailing list forever mm. uh, and use grant money to increase my subscriber base by paying for free subscriptions to... Uh, uh, writers' programs, and all writers should get it, and anybody else, because the point is that that what a publisher should do is make it public, right? Make make the writers' work public, and unfortunately, too too few people want to buy or subscribe to literary magazines, but they would at least look at them or be aware of them, or might notice new work if it was in their in their hands. Uh, so that so I didn't do that. Uh, of course, it was expensive, and I couldn't afford it at first. And by the time it finally got a, you know around to being able to afford it, I was off into other directions. But that was that was a, in a sense a big mistake. Hmm. Uh, so that's sort of what that's sort of what's nice about electronic things. It's all yeah. free, um, but nonetheless, it has doesn't have the same character. Right. No, that's true. I mean, I think the difference between digital free and physical free is actually meaningful. Um, and that, yeah. yeah. But but so did, were subscriptions your primary goal at that point, paid subscriptions? Or were you, you know, was it a mixture of selling in stores? I, and- I, I, I wish that I had a business model, but I never I never really did. In retrospect, I, I worked it out is that I, that about a, th- uh, um, a third came from advertising. I, I realized right away that I could sell ads. I went over to Black Oak in Berkeley and I went up to to uh, Bob Baldock, who was one of the owners, and I said, here's this piece of paper. I had a, a, a typewritten sheet 
this is what I want to do, and I would like you to take it out. And he said, sure. <laughs> like that. First and sale. I thought, wow, it's <laughs> first sale. That's so easy. I, I can do it. So I, I, from the beginning, I began to sell ads. And then ultimately, the, in, in the 80s, there were still a lot of independent bookstores. Still a lot of, uh, of uh, writing programs were coming up, um, art galleries, uh, restaurants, and uh, so I, I was able to generate about a third income from uh, advertising, a third from from single copy sales and subscriptions, and a third from from uh, foundations and grants. And in those days, surprisingly enough, there was still a lot of money uh, floating around to give literary grants. The NEA was still giving out grants, and we got an advancement grant, which was I think for seventy thousand dollars, and the Lila Wallace Reader's Digest Grant uh, program all of a sudden funded literary magazines and gave them roughly a hundred thousand dollars over two years for marketing programs, and so about twenty-two literary magazines got that. So that drove our subscriber base up to to about five thousand in the early uh, mid nineties, and then of course it died off because it's hard to sustain it. <laughs> if you don't do, if you if you start out, if you get people by direct mail, you have to keep doing it. But there aren't that many lists that perform well enough. It's just like distribution. Uh, you were tremendous uh, when you were doing uh, uh, when you were started out doing distribution. You took us on and got us into lots of places in the Midwest by lots of maybe what twenty or thirty or something like that. But when the big box stores like Borders and Barnes and Noble started out, one of the things they decided was that they could have magazine racks uh, and have lots and lots of magazines, including uh, 10, 15, 20, even 20 feet of shelf for literary magazines as a kind of lost leader in the, in, in the belief that someone would come in looking for mm, in the latest issue of the Paris Review, and maybe buy a book as well. And so all of a sudden, it became easy to get national distribution at a tremendous level. And in fact, I uh, I had to like always be cutting back because the uh, the uh, uh, the borders in Rawway, New Jersey, would sign on for three copies, right? But they wouldn't sell any, so I uh, had to you know, cut back and say if they couldn't sell 50%, because of course the, the, the cut that the distributor takes is 50%. So it, you have to sell at least one out of three to, to come close to breaking even there again, of course, it's, it's, that's, that's a, a tactical error on my part. Uh, and the Paris review, which I think the Paris review, for example, never committed. They just, they would, you could find Paris reviews everywhere. They didn't care. They claimed that they sold a lot of them, but I'm sure that they didn't. But the idea of having mass distribution for a little while, anyway, was very, very exciting. And you uh, helped a lot there, and I, so I was very grateful to you. Uh, I would like to mention my uh, the local LS News distributor in San Francisco. He He took my second issue and brought it around. And then when I went back to pick up the returns, he said, oh, no, there weren't any. And he just paid me for each of, each issue, which I thought was just tremendously handsome of him to help me out. 
I remember LS. Um, yeah, the 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 whole world of of magazine distribution is just completely gone now. But LS yeah. LS was a pretty important factor for a lot of places. You know, for for uh, northern yeah. Northern California for a lot of magazines. You know, it's just it, it's like a and, lost universe. There were universe. lots of regional distribu- distributors, yeah. and there was one in in uh, in Seattle. There was one in or two in in Brooklyn. Ubiquity and all these other places, yeah. And so you could get you could get into little places, and it it didn't, you know, it's it it just, um, you know, one of the wonderful things. The second, the first issue was seen in a Mill Valley bookstore by a young poet named Kay Ryan, and so so she wrote me a note and said, "Gee, this is so exciting to see this magazine come up in my neighborhood." could I come in and talk to you and see what you're up to? And so she came in. And so I published her in my second issue. Um, and th- that's the sort of thing that you, that you would like to have happen with, with distribution. You want it just that, that connection that, that uh, is so wonderful. Yeah. Well, you know, that's actually, I think you've hit on something that's really important about literary culture that, there's this kind of synergistic back and forth between editor and author that is discuss it's about discovery and that con you know these contexts are created by discoveries and i think you know that's sort of part of the history that you have i mean of uh, the story of ziziva is the discovery of your magazine by writers and your openness to their discovery uh, and part of that was done by having the magazine get to places where they could see it. Yeah. Uh, well, I I was in the first few years, maybe five or seven years or so. I just wanted to publish famous writers if I could. So I almost every name on the on the table of contents was recognizable, at least to me. And then I began to realize that. These writers, many of them, didn't care very much. They didn't care whether I published them or not. I was not doing them much good. They were pleased enough. But that that there were a lot of writers who were trying to get published, who needed a boost. And so I began to to specialize, in a way, in in publishing uh, new writers, and especially writers who had never been published before. So I began to, in every issue, have a first time in print section. And at times I would have five or seven or maybe even eight first time in print writers. And that's quite uh, dicey because of course there's by this time in the nineties, there were so many literary magazines that almost everybody had had a chance to get published. So I was publishing people who um, somehow were willing to send me their, their first thing but maybe they could have used a little bit more seasoning. <laughs> so, but I, but I, but I liked it, and I and I and I did discover a few people altogether, maybe 250 over the 25 years. But since most of those were were in the later years, that, that it's that's why the the number, it was not just 10 a year; it was more more like um, four or five or six an issue. And of the of the first time people that you published, you know, what would you say? I mean, not 
statistically meaningful. But yes, just, I know. I know the statistics. I yeah. looked it up. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Uh, of the two, of the of, <laughs> of the two hundred and fifty, about tw- about twenty five, maybe thirty, actually went on to publish books, which which is like one in ten. Yeah. I, my I always figured that of the manuscripts that I I received, maybe one out of a hundred would be I would publish. And then uh, of those that I published, one out of 10 would go on to uh, publish a book. Amongst them were, were uh, FX Tool, who's sort of my favorite. He uh, wrote the stories that became Million Dollar Baby. And uh, he would, when he sent me his first story, he was around, uh, uh, he'd been, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60, uh, quite old. I mean, he'd been writing for 20 or 30 years. And nothing had ever happened to him. And so he was so excited to have his story published. And very quickly, uh, it got picked up by a uh, um, uh, a little publisher in Santa Barbara named John. Uh, oh, dear. What was he? Oh, uh, I know who you mean. Yes, it was. Uh, they did uh, limited edition books. Um I can't remember. I'm sorry. I can't. No, it's all right. So he published a, a, a collection of his stories, and then uh, it got picked up in New York, and Joyce Carol Oates gave it a blurb. And, and uh, so FX Tool would, would be calling me and say, Chase, you know, Redford, Redford's taking a look at it, but that <laughs> bastard wants to change the end. <laughs> Fuck him. <laughs> He's not changing nothing. <laughs> so that would, that, would, that would go on. That that was quite a lot of fun, and I did, one of the people I discovered was a, a kid who lived in a dumpster uh, in the Oakland port, and he would uh, hang out and help other kids who lived in a dumpster. So he wrote about these kids, and he, he got picked up and then circulated around, and then even published a novel with Farrar Strauss, and then sort of spent his spent his his field of expertise. Uh, and uh, so that that was really fun, and and also I I wanted to be representative. I wanted to represent the community of writers and artists. And it's hard to imagine now, but in the early '80s there were still poetry wars. The language poets wouldn't speak to the formalist poets, and the new narrative fiction writers wouldn't you know speak to the blah blah blah. There was, there was a lot of sectarianism. There was still sort of a fight for the territory, you know, who would, who would dominate the the small uh, pie, who would get the get the recognition and the funding, and the, and a lot of writers didn't want to publish with somebody that they didn't like. So I once I once ran into Milos at at the uh, cafe at Chez Panisse. And I said, oh, that's why I would love to have you send me some of your work. And he said, yes, I know you sent me a copy, but uh, I thought it was very uneven. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes, of course, that's why we need your work. (laughs) But, but, but I, but I thought that was, that was, that was kind of nice, you know, but my thought was, was, was the reverse. I thought it was a good thing to, and wonderful, and 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 in fact, writers do feel that when they're starting out, when they get to appear under the same cover as 
somebody like Milos. That feels good to them and, and bolsters them and, and it welcomes them into the tribe. You know, Milos shouldn't care. He it, it, it wouldn't do anything. He eventually did. Uh, and he, he sent me one poem and, and it had uh, some uh, river and something, but he fell into the effluence of a river. And so I said, oh, no, it's not effluence. You don't mean effluence. That's that's the 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 garbage or the the the, the treatise of of a river. He said, no, I I mean I mean the the affluence of the river. And I said, no, no, you mean the confluence of <laughs> flowing together. <laughs> well, because he wasn't he English was not his first he, language. Yes, and and the marvelous thing is that this this poem had been worked on with Bob Hass, and and uh, you would have thought that that he would have caught it too but of course he he was so involved in the process too that that things would slip by him it's very hard to to you know for a writer to to be an editor and there there are two distinct things and you and it's and in fact i think very dangerous for a writer to start editing their own stuff because you can't do it you, you you can't see it. You don't have the perspective, and you can look at a word which is misspelled, and you cannot see it. Literally, can't see it. Um, and um, Bob once sent me a poem about a guy who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, and he had him jumping off facing the ocean. Mm. I said, oh, you know, Bob, you can you can have it, but it it but it it irritates it it it, it jangles the reader because we know that everybody jumps off facing the city, <laughs> not the ocean. And he said, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but anyway, just run it that way. And so I've published it that way facing the ocean. And then when it appeared in this book, the guy was facing, facing the city. <laughs> so I, that was a great, that was a great victory for, for me. So that actually, that's an interesting point about editing in particular, editing poetry, when you are running a magazine or when you were running Zizavad, did you feel, um, how involved did you want to get with the actual yeah. home itself? You know, changing words, making suggestions, or would you just say, yes, I like it, or no, I don't like it? No, well, it it, 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 it depends. There were, I knew there were some writers who, who wanted it just to be the way it was, and but... If I didn't know that, then I was very hands-on and I would really mess around with it. And usually, uh, I would just make the changes and send the galleys and see what happened, <laughs> and say if I, you know, and let them know that if I had made any mistakes, that they should change it uh, to make it correct, and that I would go with whatever correction they gave me. But uh, and I didn't want to argue about it, and as long as they didn't. Uh, send back what I had objected to. Mm -hmm. I did. I urged them not to do that. If, but if they, if they, if I had helped them in any way, that was good. And so, for some, sometimes um, it didn't work out all that well. Some some writers, I, I overstepped. Apparently, I would have retracted. You know, I, C. J. Waldy. Do, do you know him? He wrote this wonderful book about Lakewood. This this planned community, post-war community uh, in Los Angeles. And so he sent me up early on in this process a whole bunch of stuff. And so I kind of shaped it, right? Sort of like like 
like um, Maxwell Perkins shaping Thomas Wolfe, uh, this huge, massive stuff. And then I sent it to him, and he said, oh, no, that's not the right shape. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> I was, I'm just trying. And he said, no, no, you have it completely wrong. <laughs> and, and, he, and he went away. And I think maybe he had gotten another offer somewhere else. But, I mean, I would have said, fine, reshape it. I, I'm just, I, you, you threw it in my lap. And so it's, a, it's always a very tricky process. But with, with often with 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 writers who have never published before, it really helped them. And, and rather than than say, "Oh, why don't you uh, jazz up section three and and get into it quicker?" I would show them how to do it, and usually they they appreciated that and and felt that I had helped them. Uh, and I guess maybe a few I I pissed off, but but maybe not too many. <laughs> I don't know. So did you, did you, have you be out of all of that, uh, working with writers, did you develop, uh, kind of ongoing either literary or friendship relationships with numbers of these writers that you may not have known before? No, no, very, that's, that's one of the, the good and the, and the bad things about re- editing a magazine. It, it, I didn't, I didn't have a stable, so I didn't, I didn't like to publish the same writers all the time. In fact, I would, I would, uh, limit their appearances. I didn't, I, after a while I began to say, I would not only, I would not want to publish, uh, a poet until they had had a new, a new, uh, collected uh, volume, you know? So August Kleinzoller mm-hmm. would send me every August mm-hmm. for the August <laughs> issue, he would send me a poem. And for three or four years, I published him because I liked him, and he was kind of young and hot, and and so he would send me a poem like in in late in late June. He knew I was putting together the August issue, and I would publish it. And so after three or four years, I and he still hadn't published a book. I said, "No, I can't do it anymore." He said, "What is there a quota system here?" Blah, blah, blah. So that that was through that, but but. Uh, so I, but I didn't, I, I did not usually have relationships with writers, maybe FX tool and a, and a few others. Um, um, there were writers that I published maybe f- four or five or six times over the course of the years, Kay Ryan and David Rains Wallace. And, and I wish that I'd done, developed a relationship, for example, with, uh, with, uh, um, Oh, oh, geez. Ray Carver, hmm. uh, his poetry, he liked to, he liked to think of himself as a poet and took himself seriously as a poet. And of course, everybody else and me included wanted to publish his stories Well, he could never afford to send me one of his stories. And, and of course his relationship with, with his editor, Gordon Lish is notorious and well worth looking up if you if you've never seen it how gordon lish transformed his baroque style into the pared down what we consider uh raymond carver's classic style which which carver sort of later repudiated which i thought was stupid because it it, because lish really had helped him tremendously but what i should have done i think he said to Carver, "Listen, send me a poem once a year, or something like that." And and the same with Bukowski. I I, I published a couple of Bukowski's poems, and then he sent me another one. And, you know, and I just said, "I I I really can't 
publish you in every issue, and I should not have said that, <laughs> but but I really but I really meant it, you know, and uh, well because but, you, you usually, were you, yeah you were not publishing people in order to gain a credit for publishing people just by themselves. So that I think you were right yeah, to do I, that. I, I wanted to have I wanted to I wanted to at one point I built I made a poster map of which which had the West Coast which was filled in with all the names of the writers that we had published. And that's, I wanted to have it sort of an encyclopedia representation. Uh, and uh, at one point, I think I, I made a, 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 a kind of clever remark that, that restricting myself to West Coast writers uh, was a way to keep out the cheap goods from the East. <laughs> uh, and a kind of a tariff zone. And so people, writers who lived in Idaho or Nevada, or who had once gone to, 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 to junior high school in San Diego would write me and say, well, listen, don't, you know, don't, don't I count. <laughs> and, and so I, I began to publish these letters as letters to the editor. <laughs> and I, I would, I would put these letters to the editor on the, on the, on the back page. And they were usually funny. And some were, some had to do with, with complaining about they should be eligible, and some would tell me about their ridiculous life, or some would say, oh, you're the greatest uh, editor in the world, why don't, you, why don't you find me, or things like that. Uh, and and uh, th that was a lot of fun. I like to play with, I played a lot, I think, with the format of what a literary magazine was, or could be. And so the in the first issue, I had like, three pages of ads and it got up to maybe 30 pages of ads and I had maybe four photographs and three uh, prints uh, and in, in the in the last issues I would have a artwork between every literary uh, between every poem between every story between every essay uh, and so that I would have maybe 20 artists or 30 artists and 20 writers in each issue. And I would include architecture. And sometimes I would do an issue that would have only work by one photographer or, or one architect or, uh, uh, and then in uh, late in the game, when I was feeling very feisty and looking towards retirement, I did a, a whole issue uh, of selected from back issues of text image words with text in various ways. And that was all, it was all pulled from my pages. I did about, I think five anthologies uh, that Zizibra had published. And at one time I got a grant to do uh, first novels. I didn't, I had no idea, of course, <laughs> how hard it is to write a novel, how long it takes and what the, the editing process would be. I mean, it really is, a, it, it's like a marriage. It's, long term and you have to be very patient in it and uh, you know a story oh you know you work on it a few few days and you send it back and they send it back and maybe send it back again and that's it but with a novel it goes on and on and on and 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 uh so i was very lucky uh one uh writer that i sort of liked uh, uh sent me his his novel and then i I didn't hear from him after I signed the contract with him, but he uh, finally was so pleased that, that I was going to publish it that he uh, bought a lot of copies and 
it, you know, went to bookstores and bought a lot of copies. And the local Chronicle's bestseller list uh, of books is derived from calling up various bookstores and saying, what's been selling? And then they would tell them. So the bookstores would report that this that his book was selling well. <laughs> so he got on the bestseller list, and he actually sold paperback rights to a New York publisher, which was wonderful because we got our cut from that. So he made a lot of money from that book, but I uh, I hated it, and I hated him for he was his his um, his father-in-law had started Oracle, a big soft. Uh, company and so he had lots of money behind them but nonetheless it saved our bacon for a while so it's kind of fun uh, the relationships I, uh, th- that I think about of course late at night still are the relationships which I didn't have and I remember in the early 90s going down to see this guy who's running a little satiric magazine which I really liked and I wanted to write for it so I thought I would go down and talk to him and as a, as a kind of a peer, and I would figure out how I could write for him. And it was Dave Eggers. Mm. And what I, what I did, I, I didn't have, I couldn't conceive that he might write for me because it didn't, it, it didn't, it was more uh, conversational or, or I don't know, popish. I, 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 but of course he was about to, to, to write uh, his great memoir. Uh, and so I missed out on, on that. Uh, although I, I later published a, a drawing that he did, he's, he considered himself really an artist. And I, and I think he is a very, very gifted designer and of magazines and books and, and not, not so much as a greater writer, although he's been very popular and successful. Uh, and then I could have had a relationship with Jonathan Lethem. He was working at Moe's bookstore in Berkeley, and he sent me this short story uh, with science fiction. And I was looking for science fiction because Necromancer was so popular. And I thought, yeah, I, I should I should open myself up to sub-literary genres because they're becoming literary. And so I, I said, okay, yeah, could you work on it a little bit? And so he worked on it a little bit, and I still didn't like it. Uh, so I sent it back. And so I missed out on him because then he, he moved to New York. Uh, and uh, Jennifer Egan's mother, who ran an art gallery in town, uh, she begged me to publish her daughter's story. And I said, well, she doesn't live here. She's, you know, she lives in New York. I said, oh, well, she went to to Burke's school where your daughter goes uh, in San Francisco. Doesn't that count? <laughs> And so, so all these all these rules helped me, and being rigid, you know, defended me from being amorphous and and not having when I did not have a an an identity. It gave me kind of wall to a fortress like feeling. But of course, later on, then it then it had those, you know, forced me to 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 exclude things that I should have admitted and, 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 you know, compromised or waived the rules or something like that. Rules, rules are, you know, are made to be, to be broken, especially in publishing. And, and, uh, uh, it's always those things that you should have gotten that, that really, that you didn't get that, you know, I could have had Lolita, for example, uh, that, that haunted Athenaeum, this fancy literary 
house in, in New York in, in the 60s. And Willie Day came in and they all looked at it and they thought it was great, but they couldn't do it. And it would have you know set them up for the next 20 years. A lot of regrets like that. Hmm, that's interesting. So, well, that sort of gets us to you, you at a certain point, I think it was 25 years, right? You yes. um, you handed it over. You basically said, yes. now, at this point, Ziziva, you had created, is it, a, in fact, a nonprofit? Um, it is. Right. Yes, so it always it, was. It had an entity, you know, a, a, an entity and structure, so it could be right. passed or ha- would have uh, the ability to sustain itself after your departure. Um so that must have been an incredibly um, fraught uh, uh, experience for you, you know, <laughs> handing over your baby, yeah, essentially. Horrible experience. Succession uh, in magazines never, never goes well uh, with the founder. The founder, uh, you know, from, from Mr. Sean at The New Yorker to George Plimpton at The Paris Review, uh, it's, they become so in, idiosyncratic and they, and the whole, uh, magazine gets so wound up and so hidden and so complicated in their own psyches and, and their own accumulations of, of reactions that, that the next person that comes along, uh, just, you know, just is not right, is not the same and is not right. And, uh, so, we we uh, we looked for a long time, and we got Malcolm Margolin to come over to talk to the board, and and uh, you know Mark uh, Malcolm was a, was uh, a, a champion of co-publishing. He would he would go to a, an organization and say, uh, "You do all the work and give me this this manuscript, and then I will publish it. And you put up the money to publish it, and then we will split the profits if there are any." And so he did very well uh, in that, and and he encouraged us to think that it would be possible to find a successor. So the board looked around, and I looked around, and and I got uh, poets and writers to to do a little story about my search, but nobody really came forward. And at one time, a couple of board members did a a. Uh, I don't know what, a, like a prospectus of what we should be looking for in the new publish, in the new editor. And amongst the qualifications was uh, be able to speak foreign languages. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, this, you know, thank you for doing so much work and 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 considering all the, all the various aspects of what a replacement would be, but really the most important one is being able to afford it. And I, I, I was able to take the risk, uh, because I had no other choice. My career had vanished and I was, I was in my early forties and I needed desperately to, to have it succeed. And my, fortunately, my wife had a good job downtown and I could get by uh, those first couple years, uh, and I, but I did not think that I could ever ask anybody legit to come and and take the the risk of of having to raise money. And when I could see that 
funding was drying up, when advertising was drying up, when readership was drying up, I, I felt they had to be able to sustain it themselves and, in fact, have some money. Uh, you know, Dan Halpern at Antaeus was very lucky when Drew Heinz came along, and George Plimpton was very lucky when a, very, a bunch of uh, rich people, including Ali Khan, came along to back him. Uh, and it, 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 there was a tradition I could see of people. Wendy did it without a major backer, I think, uh, at Three Penny Review. But then there was a, there were, then there were a bunch of people like the Glimmer Train, which was started by a woman who uh, got a divorce, and she with her with her with her split of with her high tech husband had enough money so she and her sister could afford to do a fancy operation. And then uh, Francis Ford Coppola had started Zoetrop because he could afford that and he had office space. And when his free rent in New York uh, was taken away, he moved the magazine out to San Francisco. And then there was a, a real estate guy in uh, in uh, Portland, who started Tin House and et cetera, et cetera. So there were, there was, uh, uh, as the writing programs proliferated, when the when when the study of English got uh, poisoned by theory, and it became no longer fun to read books. And in fact, didn't really read books; you read theory. A lot of people gave up on on English majors and, and became creative writing majors and. Of course, the universities loved creative writing programs because although you needed a fancy writer to head the program, most of the work could be done by graduate students, really cheap. So it was right. Creative writing programs are very, very uh, pay for themselves kind of of programs for universities. So there, so there was a tremendous bursting out of of writing programs, and so that. That there were there were a few people that I thought would want to adopt Susie Bob, but of course, nobody wanted to because they, they all thought it was too idiosyncratic, and they all knew that they could do it better, and they didn't want to have baggage uh, of how I had defined it. Uh, but then finally, uh, somebody did come along who who did have a a father who uh, could back her. He's a venture capitalist, and so she came along, and and I could hand it over to her. Uh, I was not pleased that she uh, threw out my my mission, uh, which was to be West Coast only. She said it allowed anybody to to, to be in it, and I I don't know that that really uh, helped the magazine. And also, then she didn't have any sense of the art and didn't has not really pursued that. And also, then she hired for her managing editor, and she didn't know how to run the magazine by herself this horribly stupid fellow named Oscar Villalone who had been fired as the book review editor at the book editor at the Chronicle, a really, a real, a real jerk who I have utter disrespect for. He once did a story about, uh, uh, literary scene for some East coast thing. I don't know whether it was the times or somebody and he spelled incorrectly. So I've never been able to give him for that <laughs> because even though it's not easy to spell, if you're a reporter, you should be able to check your, your spelling. So 
So he became the managing editor, and that was very, very disappointing to me. So unfortunately, I haven't had anything to do with it uh, since I did. But that's that's probably just as well because I've had a tremendous amount of fun writing books. So I've written about 20 or 22 volumes of meta-memoir. Uh, a meta-memoir is different than a memoir. A memoir re- relies on the memory and, and you write what you remember. But what a meta-memoir does is edit artifacts from the past. For, exa- for example, uh, one volume is called Editor's Notes, and it's selections of all the editor's notes that I wrote while I was the editor of Ziziva. And of course, nobody really wants to read it, but I enjoyed it. And another one was a selection of my Facebook uh, uh, entries for a year and my blog for five years. Oh, yes. One of the horrible things that my successor did was to take down and destroy the blog that I had kept. She just like wiped it off uh, the website, which I thought was really shameless and uh, and uh, inexcusable, and and just a, a, a horrible thing to do. I don't I don't mind her glomming onto my legacy and my reputation and the writers that I had had published. That's fine, but to uh, to destroy my legacy of my blogs really 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 disgusted me. Anyway. So I've had a tremendous, uh, tremendous fun, and and to to be able to write whatever I wanted, uh, even at this late date, when it's, it was absolutely, it's been so exciting uh, to me uh, to be able because I had always, as a writer, as a journalist, I had always written to the specifications of whatever the magazine that I was writing for would want. And it tailored my style, the, the topic, everything else, to be to be to please somebody else. But to please only myself was just a just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So that that's I, I I sort of wish that I had done it earlier, but then I would have had to have been a writer, and I was never really prepared to do that when when it mattered uh, to take that risk. I mean, I. I'm, I'm, it's absolutely astonishes me that I could have t- taken the risk of starting a literary magazine when I was 45 because it, it had almost zero chance of, of success. Uh, but I didn't think it as risky. I thought it was what I had to do was my only was my only hope, and uh, and so it wasn't risky for me. It was it was just uh, what I had to do. And and the same with writing all these books. Uh, they 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 enjoy no sale. They're certainly available on Amazon, uh, but nobody will rush out to get them, and that's perfectly fine with me. Well, yeah, no, and I think there's probably something to be said <laughs> for no, but, but that you would only be able to do this if you had gotten yeah. to the to the point that you did. So I think there's yeah. you know that that I think is important. I think that at a certain point that's, you you let go of. The, the need yeah. to be judged or the need to be recognized, and then you're free to do what yeah. you, you want to do. Absolutely amazing thing. I mean, any writer can do that now. You can you can self-publish on, on KDP, which is Kindle Book Publishing, uh, Amazon's uh, um, publish on demand, for nothing. They don't charge you anything. It's zero. 
if you if you provide them with a PDF of the of the text and of the cover, and there it is, and you can and you can edit it as many times as you want, and they will print out one copy or as many copies as you want, and they will list it on Amazon. Uh, it's amazing. It's a it's a treat. Every writer should do that. <laughs> I think well, many writers are. It certainly it does it, <laughs> it makes it less necessary certainly for writers to require the um, the the acceptance of a publisher. And there are and I think it's possible for a writer to do both. You can publish yeah. within the publishing world. You can publish on your own. I know plenty of people who've had long and healthy careers, but who. They're, they always have some work that didn't fit the mold of whomever yeah. it was. So, yeah. but they love the work. So, you know, it's it's what they wrote. Yeah. Why why let it sit in a drawer somewhere? So, yeah. I think it's I think that's a really it's a positive development. Good. Well, it's, I think it's been really nice to talk to you, and maybe this is a a good place to end. Yeah. No, it's perfect actually. I really I I think you know as I really enjoyed listening to you talk and I learned a lot and I found a, a great deal that I thought was really um uh, uh interesting and that yeah, I hope others will agree. So thank you very much Howard. I appreciate it. Thanks David. Uh this this has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and publishing. I've been talking to Howard Junker principally about Zizavar Magazine, but about many other things. Thank you so much, Howard. 